Well, open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. This is the final Sunday of 2019. It's hard to believe that just in a few days we will look at 2020. Uh, I remember distinctly being in high school when uh, uh, our teacher said the world would end far before 2020. And uh, I think he was wrong, um, but there's a few days left if that should be fulfilled. So what we're going to talk about today is just a reflective time. This is less of a sermon and more of a moment of reflection. These are uh, interesting days that always draw near, at least in the American mindset, when the year end comes, looking back at the previous year and looking forward to the year ahead. In fact, most people in the next few days will be making New Year's resolutions. I read again, I don't want to discourage anybody, but the number one resolution again for this year, at least the ones that have been recorded, is what? Lose weight. I just know that there are some people who are desperately trying to gain weight, and uh, uh, maybe that's a, I'd love to have that resolution, by the way, but that's uh, interesting that every year that comes up. What is yours? When you think about the past, 12 months, when you think about the coming, 12 months, what do you resolve to do? First Peter 4, 7 I think is a good place for us to pause and consider looking back and looking forward. Let me read you 1 Peter 4, verses 7 through 11. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another. Because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. So that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. So be it. Amen. There are few concepts that spark the imagination like the idea of time travel. A lot of movies in recent years have anchored themselves to time travel. What would it be like to travel to another point in the past or in the future? If you were given one ticket to visit one place in the past or one place in the future, which, which would you choose? On the website How Stuff Works, one of my favorite websites, Kevin Bosner writes, it turns out that in some sense we are all time travelers. As you sit at your desk doing nothing more than clicking your mouse, time is traveling around you. The future is constantly being transformed into the past with the present only lasting for a fleeting moment. Everything that you are doing right now is quickly moving into the past, which means we continue to move through time. We are traveling in time. If you had a time travel machine, where, or maybe I should say when, would you go? Would you 
want to see something special to happen. Maybe in the past, the Abraham at the Gettysburg Address, Columbus landing on the New World Beach. Biblically speaking, Moses parting the Red Sea with the waters piling up and Israel walking through on dry ground. Jesus multiplying loaves. Would anyone dare stand at the cross? What about your past? Would you travel back to your past to have a redo, have a, do, have a mulligan, a reset? What if you could jump 10 years in the future or 100 to see what's happening? What if you were able to go to the last day of your life, similar to Ebenezer Scrooge, being shown what the end of your life was going to be like? I know it's a little bit creepy, odd, weird, but I can promise you, if you could see that day, that would have a radical impact on how you lived your life now. Think about the future, though, from this vantage point. What if you knew the moment that Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, glorified, sitting beside the Father in heaven, if you knew with certainty the day, the hour, the moment, the instant when he would show up in the air. As 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 says, he will come in the clouds, the shout of a trumpet. If you knew when that day was, would that impact how you lived? If that was 100 years from now, would you be complacent? If that was this afternoon at four, would that rock your world? What if on your calendar, as my calendar that I cannot edit for some reason on holidays uh, keeps showing up, what if on that calendar showed up next week, Jesus returns to the earth as the judge, his robe dipped in blood, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess who he is, every man and every woman will give judgment and account of their lives and what they've done to the gospel, with the gospel, they will give account to him this week. Will that have an impact on your life? Peter has in mind a bit of time travel in that sense in this passage. He encourages us to visit the sure future of the Christian's hope and return to this present moment and respond with that knowledge. Remember, 1 Peter is really encouraging beleaguered believers who are under severe persecution. They need to be strong and faithful under that persecution. He jumps time with them in the passage before us. He takes them to their future hope and, re and the realities that reshape their understanding of that day and of the day that they're living in the immediate. I think we need a mental shift today coming into a new year. As we begin a new year this week, I'd like for us to consider the future, but not just in reference to the coming year, but instead in reference to the coming Lord Peter is going to encourage us that our hope in the future generates massive changes in our present perspective. If you are searching for motivation for current sanctifying grace, the best place to look, according to Peter, is the future. 
Now, this is a, um, an interesting passage. Um, if you'll look back just for a second at verse, um, chapter 4, verse, verse 5, just walking up to this verse. Um, Peter gives a context. Uh, they, well, look back at verse 4. They're surprised and do not run in the same excessive dissipation. They malign you, the enemies. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead. That though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. The end of all things is near. There's a coming judgment for the living and the dead. Know this, that Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed for man once to die, then the judgment After talking about the judgment, Peter says, the end of all things is near. He looks at the final judgment and tells us that the end of all things, which begins and culminates at the same time with the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, I believe in the rapture of the church. His thrust is that we as believers should live deliberately in light of that end time and his coming judgment which means practically that believers, if you read down through the passage, should be alert and attentive for prayer. We should live in sacrificial love that includes hospitality to one another. We should use our spiritual gifts, whether speaking or serving, to help each other. And ultimately, our goal and impetus in life is to see God glorified through Jesus Christ in anything and in everything that we do. We read so often our mission statement, that we want to glorify God in every dimension of life. Every dimension of life. So what I want to do, just almost devotionally, we're not going to have time to really unpack all the nuances of this text, is, is just to look at five present perspectives generated by the Christian's future hope. We want to go to the future, the end, and come back and see what that does for us in the present. Five present perspectives that are generated by the Christian's future hope. We learn how to live and think and exist now because we've seen that the end is near. We've thought about the last day, our last day, the coming of Jesus. Number one, we have an expectant perspective. And this is the longest one, so don't be afraid if this goes a little long. The, the others are gonna go really quickly. An expectant perspective, verse seven. Peter says, the end of all things is near. Wow, what a, what a prediction, what a prophecy. The end of all things is near. Verses seven through 11 constitute really a final unit in this letter that Peter is discussing expectations about for the Christian's community. Actually, it goes back to chapter two, verse 11 and runs through chapter four, verse 11. In the close of the section, he launched in verses Chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, he says, I urge you as aliens and strangers, abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God when? In the day of visitation. That's not talking about visiting our friends who are shut in or visiting your aunt or uncle. That's the day when Christ visits this world in judgment. He launches eschatologically. You know that big word, eschatology, right? Study of the end times. He launches that eschatological perspective that live in such a way before unbelievers that they will have no excuse when the Lord shows up 
in judgment with them. But there's a problem. The end of all things is near. Do you know how long ago Peter wrote that? (laughs) Does this somehow challenge the truthfulness of the apostles, the truthfulness of scripture, the truthfulness of Peter? This is two millennia ago. He said, the end is near and the end hasn't come yet. Is the Bible errant? No, not at all. Why? Because Peter teaches us in his next epistle that time doesn't work with God the same way time works with you and with me. Turn over to 2 Peter chapter 3. This is all in keeping with the passage that Peter is um, uh, writing to us in chapter 4 of his first epistle. Just follow along as I read this, this section. This is a paragraph worth parking on. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 3. Now this is Peter talking in his day about, well, the Lord didn't come today, so people are mocking that he'll ever come again. Know this, first of all, 2 Peter 3, 3. Know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust and saying, where is the promise of his Jesus coming? Is that a fair statement? Peter said the end is near. 2,000 years later, it's not the end. People have mockingly said, then is he ever gonna come? It's the doctrine of uniformitarianism. Everything just stays as it is. For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. It's a yawning moment. For when they maintain this, Peter says, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago. The earth was formed out of water and by water through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens are being reserved for fire, coming judgment, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice. Here's what you need to remember, he says. With the Lord, one day like a thousand years. A thousand years like one day. Stop right there. So when people say, oh, come on, he said the end was near, that was not near the end because it's been 2,000 years. When people say, as in Peter's day, well, he hasn't come back yet, he's not gonna come back. And we think, well, God has tarried, not my favorite word, like he's waiting, God has tarried for for, um, uh, 2,000 years. God has not put off the return of his son for one second. Not one second. We think of Christmas just a few days ago. God thinks of the day Peter prophesied this as just a few days ago. He's being euphemistic. Thousand years like a day. Day like a thousand years. What he's saying is time doesn't work to God as the way it works for you and me. He's outside of time, all-consuming time, at the beginning and end of time. Can we just kind of melt your mind for a second? You know where God is right now? Right now, outside of time, he's at the creation of the world in an ever instant moment. You know where he is also at the same time? At the end of the age, right now. He is outside of time viewing it all in present tense. He is at your deathbed. 
right now. He knows. Process theologians tell us that God is growing and learning and evolving as we are. No. He is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. There will never be a surprise to God in the history of his universe. That just melts my mind. He sees it all. I love Psalm 139. Before I lived today, David says, you knew all of my days. How clear is that? Peter goes on. The Lord is not slow about his promise. I love that. It's been 2,000 years, but he's not slow. Verse nine, as some count slowness, some say it's been a long time, but not to God. He's patient toward you. You know, he's not come back to give those who are elect an opportunity to repent and believe the gospel. Not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. The gospel calls to all who will believe. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, unexpectedly, in which the heavens pass away with a roar. The elements will be destroyed with intense heat. The earth and its works will be burned up. Since these things are to be destroyed in, to destroy it in this way, are to be destroyed in this way, here it is. Here's the question. What sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? That's the purpose in 1 Peter and in 2 Peter. If we know the end is near, what kind of people should we be? Looking for the hastening and coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning. The elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, here it is, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. And regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. Wow. Many scriptures speak of the coming end and how we should live in response to that. 1 Corinthians 10, 11, these things happened to them. This is in the Older Testament as an example. And they were written for our instruction upon whom, our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. 1 John 2, 18, children, it is the last hour. John said the same thing Peter did. It's the last hour. And just as you have heard the, that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. Romans 13, 11 says, knowing this, that it is already the hour for you to awaken from your sleep, for salvation is now nearer to us than when we believe. That's final salvation. The night is almost gone. The day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness, put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. All of these texts say the same thing. Know the end, act different in the present. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Do you think much about the coming of Jesus? Now, full disclosure, I, I, uh, when I was in high school and I was recently converted, um, we had a series of movies that our pastor showed on Sunday night. They were the rapture movies and, and uh, they were about... I don't know, half a dozen of them, and they scared me to death. 
I would lay in my bed at night and hear some noise I wasn't familiar with. And that, is that the Lord? Am I ready? Now, there was a good part of that, actually. I mean, I, I look back, I've seen like YouTubes of those and they were such cheesy acted movies. But there's a good part of that in which looking at that caused the reality of asking the question, am I ready? Am I ready to meet Jesus? Peter, Paul, John all say, looking ahead, come back with a resolve to live differently. And again, 1 Thessalonians 4.16, we are looking, looking for the day when Jesus will return in the sky. So we are to live in the reality that Jesus, think about this, is dressed for his return trip. He's coming back to the earth. He's ready to come. The question is, are we ready to meet him? Are you at a point where you could actually say Maranatha? Where you can legitimately pray, Lord, come today, come quickly. I want you to come and receive me to yourself today. Peter's point here is that our behavior ought to reflect our expectation of the Lord's return. Every eschatological passage in the New Testament involves or concludes with some ethical or moral or sanctifying response. Nowhere in the New Testament are we commanded to create end time charts, set dates for Christ's return. In fact, if you set a date, I can promise you this. You're wrong because Jesus says no one knows the time. Instead of the study of eschatology is used for sanctifying purposes. Think of the end and then live differently. Tom Schreiner says this, eschatology is invariably used to encourage believers to live in a godly way, end quote. Pretty simple, isn't it? Let me ask you again. Peter says the end is near. We are nearer today than, than Peter was. I mean, it's, a, it's a simple reality, but you do understand that, right? If he was near, how does that put us in the expectation of Christ's return? Are you ready for Christ to come this afternoon? Do you believe he's going to come back? Are you ready? Do you have an expectant perspective? Number two, and these will go fast. A prayerful perspective, a prayerful perspective. The end of all things is near. Therefore, because that's true, what should we do? Be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. This is talking about being self-disciplined and self-controlled. That's what those two words mean, self-discipline and self-control for the purpose of prayer. I am convinced after 40 plus years in ministry that there are two things you can preach on for which every Christian will feel compelled and convicted about. Prayer and evangelism, because no one ever does enough, right? We just feel like we could do more. Well, we could, but do we? Oh, wow, that passage stings me every time I read it. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane leaves Peter, James, and John. He leaves the, uh, the others out. He takes Peter, James, and John outside the garden. He takes them deeper in. He leaves them 
perhaps by an olive tree, and says, I'm going to go in and spend time with the Father. Please stay here and pray. He comes back not once, not twice. He comes back three times, and all three times they are sleeping. You remember what the Lord says? Could you not even pray for one hour? Which tells us that Jesus thought, Oh, praying for an hour? That's, that's, you couldn't even do that? What a small task I ask you to do. He was gone, apparently, for about an hour. Gives us insight into his sweating great drops of blood and the agony that he was in. It wasn't a momentary. It was an ongoing agony. He comes back for, for, for care, for comfort, for counsel from his friends. And they're asleep. And he says, you couldn't even pray an hour. We need to be disciplined and deliberate to have the right kind of prayer life. I think the first thing to do in clearing out your mind for prayer is getting uncluttered with the attraction and affections we have for this world. The people I know who have the best prayer lives are the least attached to this world. Consistently. That first word translated sound judgment, self-control, owning your calendar. Second word translated as sober spirit means sober and disciplined, self-controlled and disciplined for the purpose of prayer. I promise you, if you're a Christian and you knew Jesus was coming back at two o'clock this afternoon, you would leave here and go spend time in prayer. The end is near. So Peter says, are you, are you ready? Someone told me, a great illustration one time, they said, you should be walking so close with Christ that should he return your next step into heaven, you wouldn't even have to break stride. You're expecting him to come. Oh, I hope he comes soon. Number three, a loving perspective. Above all, verse 8, keep fervent, that's intense, keep intense in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. That is such a powerful passage and sometimes over or under explained. Read it from the back to the, the front. Love covers a multitude of sins, therefore you should keep fervent in your love for one another, meaning that we are going to have to endure and navigate and forgive sin with each other. Over and over and over. There's so much in this, this passage, this, this phrase, love covers a multitude of sins. Do you confront every sin that's in your presence? Boy, I hope not. What a, what a tragic life that would be. Can you imagine if we confronted every sin we ever perceived in every person we ever knew who belonged to Christ? Talk about a bickering church. That would all, be all we were doing. Love covers it. Love just says, I'm going to give you grace. I'm going to uh, uh, find the sanctifying graces that need to be... Uh, uh, prevalent in your life. I'm going to speak such a word, Ephesians 4 says, as is edifying in the moment. If Jesus has forgiven us of all our sins, why can't we forgive others for some of theirs? Proverbs 10, 12 says, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all transgressions. It's not a big theological statement about forgiveness. It's a simple way believers respond to one another. 
We're aggressive about loving each other. And love includes covering each other's sin, which means that we will spend time with and enjoy fellowship with people whose sin irritates us, bothers us. But by the way, I'm sure yours does someone else as well. Keep diligent, on fire, fervent in your love for one another. This is not the emotional kind of ooey-gooey love where it's based on feelings. This is action-based. You love with your deeds, with your actions, tangibly. It means not allowing hatred and bitterness to take root between believers. This is a group of people who were being persecuted for, for their faith. And he was saying, because someone's already fighting you from outside, don't fight from within inside the church. A loving perspective. That leads to number four, a serving perspective. And we'll just highlight this. We've talked about this in greater detail in our study of the gifts be hospitable to one another without complaint. Interesting text. The, the word means love of strangers, but this is not talking about love of strangers. It's saying you have the same love that you would have for strangers. Look at it says, look what it says, to one another. You're hospitable to one another. The context of this is you use all of your possessions and all of your resources to serve others in the body of Christ. What's yours is others. What's others is yours. Just like in the early church, that's one of the things that was so compelling to the community looking at the first chapter of the church's history that begins in the second chapter of Acts. They shared all things in common. And that doesn't mean that you need to sell your house and all of us move into a single commune. What it means is you're always ready to use your resources for the service of Christ in in the ministry to others in the body of Christ. That's all it means. Is your life, is your home a context where you are serving others in the church, the body of Christ? I heard this preached on one time, basically saying, this is a biblical command to keep your house orderly and straight enough that anyone could show up at any time and you wouldn't be embarrassed and neither would Jesus. Maybe. It does mean you're willing to use your resources, all of them, for others. And not just the people who have a better, nicer, bigger place. Also, he goes into serving one another. Verse 10, as each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. This is spiritual gifts. Two categories. Each believer is to be aggressive and building up the body of Christ either by outward gifts, speaking gifts, teaching gifts, or serving gifts, which may be seen, but they're acts of service to make others' lives around you better because they know you. Whoever speaks is to do so as one speaking the utterances of God. I think that's a direct command that anyone who teaches in Christ's church ought to be teaching what God said. This is the command for exposition. I cannot, I, I, it is impossible for me to stand in front of you and speak the utterances of God, watch this, without speaking the utterances of God. 
The only authority a pastor has, a preacher has, is the word of God. The only motivation a pastor has is the word of God. The only thing that should move you is the word of God. So teachers are to be anchored in and devoted to the authority of Scripture. But then he says, whoever serves is to do so as one serving by the strength which God supplies. Meaning we never run out of motivation or energy to serve others. Oh, I've heard sweet, well-intended people say, I'm trying to serve the Lord, but I'm just getting so burnt out. If you're getting burnt out, rest assured you're resting on your strength and not the Lord's because you can't exhaust his. The strength which God supplies. Speaking gifts, serving gifts, public and private, teaching and serving. What are your gifts and are you using them to serve someone else? And then fifthly, looking at the end and coming back, we have a doxological perspective, a praiseworthy perspective. Verse 11, whoever speaks is due who is speaking the utterances of God. That's Godward, right? Whoever serves by the strength which God supplies, that's Godward. So that, here it is, in all things, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ to whom belongs the glory, the dominion forever and ever. This is praise. You know, sometimes we sing the word praise without really praising. Find someone who loves a a football team and you will hear praise. Find a young woman or a young man who are in the first chapters of their love life and you will hear praise. Listen to someone talk about a dish they had at a favorite restaurant and you will hear praise. We are natural boasters and praisers. That's why Jeremiah 9 says, Don't let the strong boast in their strength, the rich in their riches, the mighty in their power. But let him who praises, let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows God. Authenticity and praise flows from right thinking about God and his son. It's comprehensive in nature. See what it says? In all things, not some things, in all things. It's divinely focused. God may receive the, the, the light, the fame, or the attention from our, our discussions, our praise. It's Christ-centered because we understand the magnificence of who he is and what he has done for us on the cross. People who know and love Jesus naturally praise and talk about Jesus. Remember what Jesus said in Mark 10? you're ashamed of me before men, I'll be ashamed of you before my Father in heaven. Is Christ praiseworthy to you? So praiseworthy, you hope he comes back and rescues you from this world today. Oh, I know there are so many things we want to enjoy, places to go. Maybe you want to be married. Maybe you want to have children. Maybe you want to see grandchildren. Maybe you want to go here, go to Italy. go to that. It's okay to have aspirations. But none of those aspirations should elbow out the thought that the thing I want most is for Jesus to come and take me to heaven today. The end is near, Peter said. Are you ready? Have you given your life to Christ? Do you believe 
Do you understand that you are a, and I love you for saying this, a wicked, hell-bound sinner in desperate need of salvation from hell and that God made provision for that by punishing his son instead of you on the cross and saying he will place his punishment to your account and give you his holy righteousness so that you can go to heaven. And he rose from the grave to prove that that's so. Have you believed that? Are you ready for the coming judge? Again, Hebrews 9, 27. It is appointed for man once to die, then the judgment. We will meet Jesus through death where the clouds may part today. And in thinking about that our end may be near, and that his coming and drawing all things to an end may be near should make us circumspect and looking not to the coming year, but more to the coming Lord.